Hello everyone, welcome to Drafting Archetypes. I'm Sam Black, and today we are going to talk about drafting blue-black in Kaldheim. Uh, before we get to that, as always, I'd like to give a quick shout-out and thank you to my new patrons, Douglas, Jacob, Joan, Kaylee and Lily, Caesar, and Isaac. Thank you very much for your support. Also, all of my other previous patrons, I appreciate you as well. Uh, for anyone who is interested in supporting the podcast in that way and getting access to my show notes and draft logs and voting for what what archetypes I'm covering next week and some other goodies, check out uh, patreon.com slash drafting archetypes for all that info and to get involved. Also, for anyone who's looking to support the podcast but maybe uh, doesn't want doesn't have the money that they want to spend in that way, totally understand and appreciate anything that you want to do to help spread the word, tell your friends, leave uh, any kind of positive uh, reviews on any of the podcast apps or YouTube or anywhere else that you happen to consume the podcast. For anyone who is listening to this at home, or, well, not, I mean, I assume any, I don't care where you're listening to this. For anyone who's not listening to this live and is instead listening to this on YouTube or in a podcast, uh, you can check this out live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Central on twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black, my Twitch channel, where, incidentally, I also stream basically every evening. With all that business aside, let's get to Blue Black, starting with how you get into the archetype. So... As usual, going over top, like, uncommons and rares and sure mythics that make you want to want to get into this color combination. Uh, let's start with some mythics. Valky, God of Lies, slash Tybalt, Cosmic Imposter. Uh, I'm not going to read double-faced cards, and if you've been playing Magic at all lately, you know what this card is. It's obviously a complete bomb in Limited, and a perfect card to start drafting a control deck with. I think there's a pretty good chance that this card is actually better in blue-black than it is in black-red, since you are more likely to just make your land drops due to having additional card draw, and more likely to, you know, find it and cast it, and it just lends itself really well to that kind of game plan. This is, uh, when I was talking about blue-white and how it could be drafted either aggressively or controlling, I talked about how in order to draft it as a control deck, you need to make sure that you have some really high-impact cards that you can be playing toward and setting up and eventually finding and uh, using to win the game to defeat color combinations that implicitly give, them, give the drafter access to more powerful cards because they can play more colors. Because blue-black is, I think, almost exclusively a control deck in this format, Again, you're going to be way, way, way better off if you start with a mythic or really powerful rare. So, uh, Valky, God of Lies, perfect card for that kind of thing. Eradicator Valkyrie, much less powerful than than Valky, but really a, a surprise. So, it's, Eradicator Valkyrie is a surprisingly good fit for this archetype. I... Uh, drafted a blue-black deck recently that I thought was a little questionable, only okay. It had Eradicator Valkyrie, and I uh, I think I went 7-1. I think my only loss was due to stumbling on mana. And 
Eradicator Valkyrie definitely played a really big part in that. It uh, just made it like, if your opponent can't answer Eradicator Valkyrie, it's extremely hard to race. And when you're blue-black, it's very easy to have cards that can return it if they kill it. And often you might get like a little life cushion when they kill it. And that, like, the, the fact that this comes down early and gets you to a late game and then is also fi a finisher in a late game makes it really, really strong. And the boast ability, uh, for anyone, maybe I, I can cover what this card does. It's <laughs> a little late to do that, but uh, two black, black, angel berserker, flying lifelink, hexproof from planeswalkers, and boasts for one and a black and sacrifice a creature, and then each opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker, and it's a 4-3. I found even in like a low creature blue-black deck, uh, that boast ability came up and was very good because I had so much other removal that I would often just be in a spot where whatever random creature I had, if I wanted, I could trade for the single creature that my opponent had. Obviously that ability is going to be better in some in basically any other black archetype, the boast ability, but the card is a whole package. It, it's obviously... A four mana mythic that's great it's going to be great in any black archetype but i did find that it worked as like a high impact bomb in blue black next up alrund god of the cosmos this is another double face card that i'm definitely not reading all of generic high impact card i think lower impact worse for the archetype than eradicator valkyrie but definitely a card that's strong enough that i would be comfortable potentially moving into a control direction with this as a starting point if I saw other cards that pushed me that way. Burning Rune Demon. This is really exceptional for blue-black. This is 4BB Demon Berserker 6-6 Flyer. When it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for exactly two cards not named Burning Rune Demon that have different names. If you do so, reveal those cards. An opponent chooses one of them. Put the chosen card into your hand and the other into your graveyard. Then shuffle your library. This So, there are very few creatures in the set that are really worth doing the work to reanimate. And an extremely small portion of the few that exist are blue or black. Which is awkward for an archetype that actually supports reanimating creatures really well. The result is that sometimes you are tempted to maybe splash just like a six or seven mana common in a different color to have a high impact creature to return. With Burning Rune Demon, you get a higher impact creature than all the commons that plays super, super perfectly in this strategy. Really high impact to return from your graveyard to the battlefield and really good at setting up all kinds of sweet like graveyard shenanigans you can search for whatever creature you want plus rise the draugr or whatever really 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 fantastic entry point into this deck hunting voyage four black black sorcery choose a creature type return up to two creature cards of that type from your graveyard to the battlefield if this spell was foretold return all creatures of that type from your graveyard to the battlefield instead foretells for five black black this I think of as more of an elf card as far as like the direction that I want to go with it, but definitely can work in blue-black with like if you lean into doing self-mill stuff, don't even necessarily know what creature type you're going to be choosing, but presumably you can find something reasonably valuable to do with it. 
Nowhere near the high that Burning Moon Demon gives you as far as entry point to this deck, but you could probably make it work. Elrin's Epiphany, five blue-blue sorcery, create two 1-1 one, one bird creature tokens with flying, take an extra turn after this one, exile Elrin's Epiphany, foretells for six. This card is really something. Maybe not at his best in blue-black, but again, it's just like such a powerful thing to do. It's Whatever you think of it, it's probably stronger than that if you haven't played with it. Uh, taking an extra turn while making creatures is just a really big deal. It's very easy to position yourself into a spot where that'll win a race or get you out of a jam or whatever. Um, so those are the mythics that are, I think, like relevant for going into this archetype. Then rares, uh, fewer portion of the rares than the mythics are going to be relevant for this, not surprisingly. Cards that stand out. Cosima, God of the Voyage. This is... I talked about this in Blue-White Control. Same situation. Just a really good source of card advantage. Comes back usually with two or three counters as a large threat. Just a great starting point for any kind of control deck. Egon, God of Death. This plays well with like the blue-black self-mill direction, which is an kind of like an optional the archetype of different ways that you can go with blue-black. This card, I would say, overall has been not quite... So, I'm more optimistic in general about Throne of Death than I am about Egon, God of Death. Throne of Death is the backside that mills you and then gives you this, like, tome-type effect where you can spend two and a black and exile a creature from your graveyard to draw a card. This is somewhat high variance in terms of how quickly it actually hits creatures and lets you draw cards, and comes with some amount of risk of decking yourself when you play it really early, since you can't choose not to mill. Overall, I think that Egon is not something I'm super thrilled to first pick, but is a powerful card that I would be very happy moving into blue-black from. Yorn, God of Winter, more relevantly for blue-black, Cauldring of the Rhyme Staff. One blue-black, snow, uh, legendary snow artifact. You can tap it to play a snow permanent from your graveyard uh, this turn. If you do, it enters the battlefield tap. The big joke that you're trying to pull off with this in blue-black is this with Priest of the Haunted Edge and a lot of snowlands, and then buying back a removal spell every turn. Uh, totally reasonable like card to first pick and try to move into snow and if green's not very open you can definitely play it as just a blue-black card maybe you end up splashing the ability to cast Jorn. King Nerfie's Betrayal. I think this card is probably slightly underappreciated. I think it's really really powerful. This is one blue-black saga each player mills four cards and you can you may exile a creature or planeswalker from each graveyard and then the next two chapters allow you to cast those cards, spending mana of any color to cast them. This is like an enabler and payoff and like card advantage source and big finisher. You generally want to wait as long as possible to play it. And it is like, ideally you can answer some of your opponent's big stuff. And then you just get two huge threats with it, which is... A really perfect game-ending situation for a control deck. Plays really well with Splashing uh, Master Scald, which 
is definitely a thing that I think that you can do in a base blue-black deck to good effect. Next up, Varagoth, Blood Sky Sire. This is a 3-mana, 2-3 death touch with Boast, 1 and a black. Target player searches their library for a card, shuffles and puts the card on the top. 2-3 death touch is just a great rate, and searching for the card of your choice to draw after is awesome. A large portion of the time, you're just going to play this attack tutor for anything and trade with your opponent's card but the ceiling is even better than that where you set up a spot where you're killing your opponent's blocker getting in tutoring for another kill spell killing their next blocker tutoring repeat very very low very high floor and high ceiling very very strong card cosmos charger three and a blue three three flying flash for telling cards from your hand costs one less and can be done on any player's turn for tell for two and a blue. The main payoff to this card is less about its for tell shenanigans and more about ambushing your opponent's attacker with a 3-3 flash flyer. Anytime you can you know, play a 3-3 flash flyer and kill your opponent's creature at the same turn for only three mana is going to be a really big swing. Your opponent is down a threat, you've saved you know, life obviously because you killed their attacker, now you have a relevant threat, uh, really good against like the Battlefield Raptor decks. I've been in a spot where you know you suspend or you foretell Cosmos Charger on th on your second turn, especially on the play. You do that on turn two. They Raptor on turn one. On turn three, they like play and equip a pick, and now they're tapped out and attacking you with a two three life or a two, two a two three first striking creature that will get, that they're expecting get it to get a treasure from. And instead. You flash in Charger, kill their thing, skip their turn, and now you've just completely swung the game. Not, not exactly the, like, bomb, alright, I'm drafting my control deck around this kind of card, just a strong card that lends itself fine to being in this archetype or any other. Cosmos Elixir. Four mana artifact at the beginning of your end step. Draw a card if your life total is greater than your starting life total. Otherwise, you gain two life. This is a really solid control card. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Crippling Fear. Choose a creature type. Creatures that aren't of the chosen type get minus three, minus three until end of turn for two BB. Obviously, any kind of control deck is going to be pretty happy with a sweeper, even if it's somewhat conditional. It won't necessarily kill everything. Draugr Necromancer. Uh, three, bl three black, snow creature, zombie, 4-4. Four, four. If a non-token creature an opponent controls would die, exile that card with an ice counter on it instead. You may cast spells from among cards in exile your opponent's own with ice counters on them. You may spend mana from snow sources as though it were mana of any color to cast those spells. This card is ridiculous. Uh, if you, like untap with this and kill a single creature and then like all your removal spells become control magics and you have a four for four four for four really 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 perfect entry point to this deck it's a zombie cleric so it plays really well with uh rise the dragger especially in conjunction with priest of the haunted edge very very good entry point to this deck maskwood nexus four mana artifact creatures you control are every creature type the same is true for creature spells you control that uh and creatures you own that aren't on the battlefield three tap create a two two blue shapeshifter creature token with changeling this is kind of like cosmos elixir in that it's just like a random 
artifact that threatens to take over a long game, so it plays really well with just like a lot of removal and then looking for some reliable way to win eventually. Graven Lore, three blue blue snow instant scry axe, where X is the amount of blue spent to cast this spell and draw three cards. You know, just a way to overwhelm your opponent with card advantage. Turgrid, God of Fright. This is the 4-5 Menace that takes their stuff that they discard or sacrifice on the front, and a Lantern that Torrent of whatever uh, from the second Amonkhet set. Uh, you know, they, a bad thing happens to them, and you can untap it to make more bad things happen to them. Very slow, reliable... Not that slow. <laughs> Very inevitable win condition on the back and like good creature on the front just a solid threat you know a solid like by solid i mean like a rare worthy threat a my deck is going to present this threat and make sure that like it kills you kind of card blood on the snow i haven't had the pleasure but this card is absolutely perfect for getting into blue black four black black snow sorcery choose to either destroy all creatures or all planeswalkers then you can return a creature or planeswalker card with converted mana cost xls from your graveyard to the battlefield where x is the amount of snow spent to cast this so fully hard sweeper that kills all of their creatures and immediately gives you board presence it really couldn't ask for a better card for a control deck and then the last card that i want to talk about is not a card that i recommend first picking but is a really interesting entry point into blueback control, or maybe even payoff for being blueback control, and that's Icebreaker Kraken. 10 blue blue for an 8-8 that costs one less for each snowland you control, and when it enters the battlefield, artifacts and creatures target opponent controls don't untap during their next untap step, and you can return three snowlands you control to their owner's hand or return Icebreaker Kraken to its owner's hand. The reason that I think Icebreaker Kraken is noteworthy is that it is a super high impact reanimation target that uh, plays really well with Pilfering Hawk or any other way that you could discard it or mill it and then return it early and because it's a blue card with this theoretical alternate casting cost you're not like you have outs to just like cast it and use it if you draw it naturally so I think, I think the secret to really maximizing this card might be to think of it primarily as a reanimation target. Those are the rare and mythic entry points to the set. I am going to go over uncommons. I forgot that I wanted to do something very slightly differently in this uh, episode and probably moving forward, which is that I wanted to kind of outline where I'm going, uh, lay out a lesson plan before I get into the lesson. I remember this partway through what I was doing and I didn't want to interrupt myself, but things that I'm going to be covering in this episode so that you can kind of structure what I'm talking about in some kind of larger context. Once I finish the entry points, I'm going to talk about the value that this, or about the way that splashing works in this archetype, how and why splashing is easy in this archetype, then notes on a few specific comments, then a kind of a deep dive into using the graveyard, which is the thing that this uh, archetype can focus on or not, and then just a few other notes. So pretty pretty simple structure here. I think the archetype's reasonably straightforward, but that's that's my slated agenda. I'm sure I'll figure out a few other things. Anyway, 
uncommons. Uh, Giant's Amulet. I'm going to not give exact text on uncommons. I'm going to hope that uh, people have familiarity or can look them up. So uh, Giant's Amulet, this is the equipment that makes a 4-4 and uh, gives it plus, gives things plus 0-1 and hexproof uh, while they're untapped. This is a really strong card. In, like It's just a really strong card, and it's particularly good at stabilizing. It, the 4-5 hexproof makes it really hard to attack on the ground. It's like a control player. Like, it's... Bergstrider is like a... You know, they're very similar cards. They're both blue five mana giants that are four fours, except this is actually kind of a five five. Bergstrider is much more of a an aggressive card, and this is more of a controlling card. I think that like Bergstrider is better in an aggro deck, and this is better in a control deck. Not relative to in the other, but relative to the other card. If that makes sense. Avalanche Caller. Uh, this is the two mana one three that can animate lands into four four hex proofs. Snowlands. This is like really just a perfect card you can play it early as a blocker it's a high priority removal target for your opponent but you can get it back in this kind of archetype with like rise the dragger or maybe even like a splashed uh shepherd of the cosmos or whatever or any other animation spell and it can end a late game in a hurry it can stabilize the battlefield in a late game in a hurry super cheap super easy to use super impactful if you're blue-black, you want to be prioritizing snow anyway. Um, really, it's amazing that this card's not rare. Draugr's Helm. This is the black equipment that makes a 2-2 zombie and turns it into a 4-4 menace. It's a strong card, but honestly, uh, from among black archetypes, it's probably at its absolute worst in blue-black. I'd be fine playing it, but like if I take Draugr's Helm early, I'm probably not looking to be blue-black. Glimpse the Cosmos, great flexible card, good in any deck, good here, whatever. Icebind Pillar, same situation except that it, it requires snow, which is going to play well with blue-black. You know, like, you're going less out of your way picking up the snow than you are in something like uh, blue-white or blue-red, and there are more cards that are going to reward you for doing it. I have I've been... I mean, Icebind Pillar is great, great in every deck. I've been really impressed when I play against it, really impressed when I play with it. I will note that for whatever reason, I felt especially carried by it uh, in blue-black, but I don't know that it's actually like better here, but it's certainly great. Poison the Cup. This is the removal spell that scries if you foretell it. I'll be a great card. Replication Ring, or Replicating Ring. This is the colorless snow artifact that gives you a mana of any color, which I think is obviously this is a card that can go in any archetype and i haven't mentioned in other archetypes probably relevant well it's a little bit relevant for blue white but honestly i think it's at its absolute best and most significant in blue black for a number of reasons uh first of all blue black cares about snow sources and this is one also uh blue black as i mentioned i would be getting to really can splash easily and benefits a lot from doing it. And this is the only, well, this is the best uh, fixer that's available to you. You also have the common dual lands and Shimmer Drift Veil, but you don't have access to the green card Glittering Frost. And so because you don't have the common replacement, its value goes up a lot. And uh, because you're likely looking to splash, 
this makes makes all of that a lot easier. Frostpire Arcanist. I think this is exceptional in blue-black because you are a deck that will have a lot of spells and you can likely do some self-milling, so you're more likely to have milled one copy of a spell to allow yourself to very easily enable finding your other copy of it with Frostpire Arcanist. It might be a little bit more likely to cost 5 mana than 4 mana relative to something like Blue Red Giants, but I think that it matters more that it's more likely than that deck to be able to find a spell, which is really the key to making that card great. Nerfy Betrayer King, it's the blue-black gold card, which ironically is probably worse in blue-black than kind of like five-color snow green decks because the five-color decks have more and easier access to snowlands, especially in green, where you have uh, cards that search for lands that can find snowlands and glittering frost that can turn lands into snowlands. It's much easier to get snow, snow, snow in a green deck than it is in a blue-black deck. So while a blue-black deck is happy to try to use an Arfie and definitely benefits from milling it and the ability to play it from the graveyard and all that, it is much harder to use uh, to peak performance in like dedicated blue-black than it is in a green deck. So those are the entry points. I mean, hypothetically, you could start with Behold the Multiverse or Feed the Serpent or something, but I would not uh, hope to end up in blue-black if I started with those, and I would not hope to start with those. So let me elaborate on this splashing point. The best, the best mana fixing is the draw step. The more cards you see, the more likely you are to find the mana that will allow you to cast spells uh, of colors that are not your primary colors or that you are splashing fewer sources of. This is why I advocate splashing in aggro decks as little as possible, while you can be way more lax and ambitious when splashing in control decks. As long as you have a core of spells that you can reliably cast to make the game go long and to let you draw a lot of cards, you can expect that you will eventually find the mana for your splash cards. This means that you can splash removal, but you don't want to splash all of your cheap removal. You can splash a little bit of supplemental, ideally hard removal to use in the late game to get you out of a jam. Similarly, you can splash finishers. If you're not playing your card, like if you have an expensive card that's going to kill your opponent eventually, especially like, you know, the more hard control you have of the game, the more you can afford to just wait and do that whenever. So this is an archetype that you should really think of as, oh yeah, I'd be happy to splash some stuff, especially because um, there's a good chance that you're gonna be prioritizing Snowlands. And so if you're willing to take some off-color basics, but then use them to splash something, or if you're willing to prioritize dual lands that are blue or black and make it easier to splash something else, you can just like get more value out of having more snow and take advantage of these cards that you're picking up just like for snow to let you get a little more power in your deck, which obviously is really important when we're talking about a control deck that's going to have to go up against go toe-to-toe -to -toe with 
the multicolored decks that exist in this format and they're you know in a same in the same spot where they're sniping good cards from every color you would like to be able to do that also i would say if you start off with a card that's making you think you're going to try to be blue black control don't be afraid to just snipe any random powerful cards and then don't feel like you need to abandon the blue black shell that you have to use those you can you can splash quite easily and profitably in this archetype the reason let me kind of establish my this isn't this wasn't on my agenda but it's probably worth doing let me kind of establish my assumption or claim that you're basically exclusively going to be a control deck and the so i talked obviously it's not the case that blue can't be aggressive and it's not the case that black can't be aggressive i talked about blue white aggro being kind of like the default place that i would imagine trying to be if i'm blue white and uh i think that black with most of the other colors is going to lean toward trying to be aggressive take advantage of carful raider maybe is the name of whatever the five mana four four that pumps two guys when it enters the battlefield makes them indestructible and the uh 2-2 Berserker that if it's big when it dies you get another 2-2 and stuff. Like black has some good aggressive commons. But when blue is aggressive, I think that you're trying to uh, prioritize pairing it with flyers and leaning into an evasive game plan that uses uh, equipment, especially pick, really well. When black is aggressive, I think that it's more beat them up on the ground, establish a lot of power, kill their blockers, kind of like, um, you know, threats and removal, classic, like, black-red strategy. A an, a low-power evasive threat, like Pilfering Hawk or Mistwalker, does not pair well with a, like, removal spell killing a blocker to push damage. You Your creature was already planning to be able to connect, and you're not getting toward closing a game so you haven't like your cards have not interacted in any meaningful way similarly like your blue card i mean yeah the 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 ways that these decks attack are not at all synergistic and there are not very many different aggressive cards in these colors and there are a lot of synergies and like redundancy in trying to be controlling in this archetype so that's why I think it's basically a foregone conclusion that you're going to be a control deck. And we can proceed with our evaluation and unpacking and understanding what this archetype is doing from the framework of, okay, I'm trying to draft a control deck. The main commons that I want to discuss are uh, first, Bergstrider. Bergstrider, uh, I mentioned, is you know the aggressive foil to Giant's Amulet. And it's an amazing tempo card. I talked about it at length in uh, blue-white. But the less your deck cares about tempo, the worse Bergstrider is. And to my mind, blue-black ideally is... I, I see tempo and attrition as fundamentally opposite sides of a spectrum. And blue-black is as far as you can get on the attrition rather than tempo side. So 
That means Bergstrider is at its absolute worst in blue-black. So despite the fact that blue-black can care about snow, and it might seem like, oh, Bergstrider is like generally what's up, I would say discount the strength of Bergstrider that you imagine from other archetypes a great deal when thinking about it in blue-black. Is it still playable? Yes, Bergstrider is a very strong card. Should you draft it highly in this archetype? I really don't think so. So, something to keep in mind. Next, Elder Fang Disciple. This is the uh, one in a black, one one elf cleric. When it enters the battlefield, your opponent discards a card. This is a pivotal card for blue-black. Not a necessary card, but a pivotal card. And what I mean by that is whether you, like, having multiples of these enables cards and plays that are not available if you don't have exactly this card. And what I'm talking about specifically is Trickster God's Heist. Uh, Trickster God's Heist is the blue-black saga uh, where the first chapter is to trade creatures with your opponent. That's the most important chapter. The second chapter is to trade non-creature, non-basics. Um, and the third chapter is to drain for three. This card is really good if you can essentially give your opponent nothing, like give them a horrible creature, and really bad if you don't have a random garbage creature reliably to give your opponent. Elderfang Disciple is the weakest creature that you can have on the battlefield in blue-black to give away by a considerable margin. The next weakest that you might play, and that you can play to support Trickster God's Heist if you're playing it, is Carful Harbinger, which is the 1-3 that can tap for a mana for foretelling and instants and sorceries. But if you don't have exactly Elderfang Disciple, it's very hard to find stuff to give away with Trickster God's Heist. But if you do have Elderfang Disciple, Trickster God's Heist is a really strong card. I am still going to be really cautious about tra taking and trying to play Trickster God's Heist in blue-black, uh, unless I have, like, three Elderfang Disciples as a floor. But that can happen, and once you, like, go down the Elderfang Disciple path, it can be a thing that you're doing. And then you can prioritize Trickster God's Heist, prioritize more Elderfang Disciples, and if you get enough of them, you can start thinking about cards like uh, Village Rights or the uh, plus two plus O, and when this dies it comes back various ways to take advantage of your Elderfang Disciples. And it's just really not interchangeable with other blue and black cards. Trickster God's Heist, for what it's worth, is much easier to use in Sultai, where you have access to like the 1-1 Changeling that puts a plus 1 plus 1 counter on something, and Elderleaf Mentor that is the 3-2 Elf that makes a 1-1 Elf, and the Elven Bow makes a 1-1 Elf token. A lot more access to just like garbage creatures to trade away. Like Narfi, it's it's really awkward for blue-black that both of the gold cards are better in green than they are in dedicated blue-black decks, but that's the reality you're dealing with if you try to draft blue-black. So Elderfang Disciple, especially in large numbers, gives you like this backdoor way to take advantage of a really strong really narrow, uncommon, that you can cast and very few people at the table can cast. So there's a lot of value to pick up from being able to use it, and Elderfang Disciple is like a necessary part of being able to use it. The last common that I want to talk about specifically is Strategic Planning. This is not a very strong card, but 
it does a thing in blue black, which is that it enables way down and rise the Draugr and any sort of reanimation stuff. And whatever, whatever you're trying to do with your graveyard, strategic planning is basically the most efficient way to guarantee that it's happening. And it's also like pretty good at finding bombs. Like if you start a draft with like that 6-6 demon that I was talking about, strategic planning is gonna be a very good card in your deck because it makes sure that you like find your demon or maybe you mill your demon and you find a reanimation spell and your whole deck is just gonna like function way more smoothly, do its thing way more consistently. And I think blue black can afford if your deck is good to like take a turn off at some point to do this and there's a lot of potential payoff for doing it and that brings us nicely to this whole like graveyard not graveyard thing where uh, the not graveyard deck is basically uh you're just doing normal stuff you have your Mistwalkers and Letjarakin seekers and priest of the haunted edge and dread rider as these like very high toughness defensive creatures that can provide virtual card advantage they pair very well with Jarl of the Forsaken which is the 3-2 fertile creature that kills a damaged creature where you have like these low power high toughness creatures that can get into a fight where they live and the other creature lives oh but wait actually you kill the other creature and your high toughness creatures can hold the ground while you get ahead on cards with Behold the Multiverse and Skull Raid and Rise the Draugr. You can get synergies going with like Rise the Draugr, Strategic Planning, Priest of the Haunted Edge, Way Down, where you're doing just a little bit of graveyard, not like super deep graveyard stuff, but you're uh, using Priest to put things in your graveyard either to get them back with Rise or to kill another creature with way down to get some like early cheap removal to buy time to presumably get your card advantage with your like beholds and feed the serpents you can use strategic planning oh the other thing about strategic planning is that it's a really really good mana fixer the thing that i was saying about like the more cards you see the sketchier your mana can be very true in like and in blue black and the biggest keys to that are strategic planning and behold the multiverse and glimpse the cosmos to let you bias your mana heavily toward blue even if you have some double black spells like feed the serpent and some splash cards as long as you have like nine maybe things are a little sketchy and you have to push it eight blue sources and you can like reliably cast the strategic planning and behold the multiverse they're going to be very, very, very good at finding your second color, definitely, and then often getting you to your splash color quickly enough. Strategic planning, when you're not like the full-on graveyard deck, is a priority if you are finding yourself moving in a direction of having maybe some more ambitious splashes. So that's, I mean, you know, that, like, generic control deck, hold the ground, kill their creatures, get card advantage, find your rare mythic bomb, whatever, kill them with your rare mythic bomb, is kind of like the default normal blue-black control deck. Then there's this other deck, Reanimator, that like uses the graveyard potentially for reanimation. So there are genuinely a substantially above average number of ways to put a creature directly from the graveyard onto the battlefield in this set. Specifically, 
Haunting Voyage, that's the expensive mythic that I talked about. Blood on the Snow, that's the busted sweeper that I talked about. Ascent of the Worthy, that's the the white-black saga, three mana. The first two chapters don't do very much, and then the third chapter returns a creature from your graveyard to the battlefield as a warrior, maybe even warrior angel, with flying. This card is not good and is not drafted highly. That means that if you are trying to draft a reanimator deck, you can likely get it fairly late, and you can play this whenever you have three mana up, fill your graveyard, and get some random creature back with flying. When you add flying to a random moderately sized creature, you have a pretty good thing. If your deck has some strong creatures, it can be and good amount of self mill, Ascent the Worthy can actually be pretty good, especially if you are also splashing Master Scald, which is also a white card, and you can return Master Scald with Ascent the Worthy, and then return Ascent the Worthy with Master Scald, and then Ascent of the Worthy something else a little bit later. Similar situation, Carter, Carter's Vicious Return. First chapter lets you sack a creature to bolt something, second chapter lets you uh, makes both players discard a card, which can enable you to discard a big thing to reanimate. Third chapter lets you reanimate something. Again, not a very desirable card, not very many people want it, not very many people can cast it. If you are seriously trying to do a reanimation thing, you will probably see it if it's opened at the table. This means that if you start with like that Kraken that I was talking about, or the Demon, and you try to position yourself into blue-black, where you can easily pick up roughly as many strategic plannings and Comus Faithfuls as you could ever imagine wanting, you can expect to find some of these low-priority uncommons that'll let you return these creatures from your graveyard to the battlefield. Pilfering Hawk allows you to like set that up if you draw them. So you can like actually like count on, even though the reanimation's at uncommon, you can count on getting these cards. But wait, there's more. There's also Port of Carfell, the uh, blue land that enters the battlefield tapped and lets you spend black, black, blue three to mill four and return a creature from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. And Return Upon the Tide, the five mana uh, zombify that returns a creature from your graveyard, and if it was an elf, gives you two one one elves. Both of those are playable without splashing. Both of those are also relatively low priorities. I see them table almost every time I see them in drafts, honestly. And then the last card that is technically reanimation, um, but a little, little bit of a different animal, is Shepherd of the Cosmos, the uh, white 3-3 flyer that returns a two mana or less permanent from the graveyard to the battlefield. Which is a really strong card when you're enabling reanimation stuff. It means that you're likely to be able to just like return a land with, you, with it or something if you want. Also, a really, really good combo with Port of Carfell where like if this is in your graveyard you can port to return it and then it can return the port and then if it dies you can do it again you could like port something else and then like cast shepherd and get port back like it works in any direction and it creates a loop the only danger is you might deck yourself if you go too hard on it but realistically i think you're probably just going to kill them with the creatures you return incidentally shepherd of the cosmos does the same thing with uh lajara mirror lake not very likely to be relevant in your blue-black deck, but it's a true fact about Shepherd of the Cosmos. So yeah, there's like this 
large amount of reanimation, like really shockingly large, and it's mostly ignored, you can do reanimation. I want to cover, if you're trying to do this, what are the enablers? So Burning Room Demon, technically an enabler, mostly a payoff to reanimate. Egon, God of Death, more specifically Throne of Death, uh, is obviously a great way to start milling yourself early if that's something you're trying to do. Herald Unites the Elves technically mills some cards, but we're going real deep if we're using that one. King Nerfie's Betrayal. This I mentioned earlier is a really, really strong bomb in this archetype, and I think if you start with that and go blue-black, it would be a great reason to go uh, down a reanimation path. It's really it's a really strong enabler for graveyard stuff and for reanimation that is also in itself a payoff for your other milling because it can find any creature you've milled at any point in the game. Strong win condition in its own that like pairs what like all the cards work together if you try to do this with reanimation. Fersia, Judge of Valor. This is the uh, black-white uncommon angel that when you cast your second spell essentially casts strategic planning. This is both a very high impact creature to return, so kind of in a similar spot to Burning Rune Demon where it's both an enabler and a payoff, depending on whether you're, you know, which side of the equation you happen to be on. Roots of Wisdom, the green strategic planning that has a bit of an elf bias. Not particularly likely to be relevant, but it's there. Strategic planning, I've talked about that at length. Coma's Faithful, 3-1 lifelink when it dies, both players mill 3. Really good for just, like, staying alive in this kind of deck while also setting up graveyard stuff. I talked about how Carter's Vicious Return can enable this. Port of Carfell, since it mills you, can enable the three seasons. Hypothetically, a card that you could splash to enable this kind of thing, and also one that pairs well with playing like strategic planning and milling yourself in general. Three Seasons generally suffers from the fact that it's very hard to have enough snow density that you can expect to get value out of casting the Three Seasons early because you need to spike a snow card on your first mill three. But if you're pairing it with a bunch of other mill stuff, now this is maybe turning into draw two good cards and then shuffle three cards back into your deck. And we can start talking about this maybe being a card that's worth splashing. Battle of Frost and Fire, speaking of great control cards to splash in a blue-black control deck, this is a sweeper that also incidentally on its third chapter can give you the ability to discard a card from your hand. So it's an out to maybe you splash this and maybe you're splashing a Cinderheart Giant or whatever and it gives you a way to discard that to return it if double red is maybe a little ambitious for your deck. Similar situation, Bergy God of Storytelling, technically the horn, allows you to discard cards. Not not really the primary use for what you're doing with Bergy or the horn, but something that you can keep in mind as an option. Red has a few other ways to let you discard cards to enable stuff along the Carter's Vicious Return route. Uh, in Immerstrom Raider, the 2-1 that uh, rummages when you play it and sees the spoils, the three mana discard a card, draw two cards, make a treasure. And then Pilfering Hawk is the blue way to discard a card. So those are, that's the deep dive, extensive, all the ways that you can set up reanimation, get paid for reanimation. If you're doing this, there are a number of other cards in blue-black that reward you for your trouble. Um, there are cards that allow you to access either themselves or other cards from your graveyard. Uh, King Narfi's Betrayal, as I've talked about, the Rhyme Staff, the backside of Yorn. Frostpire Arcanist, I mentioned, Glimpse the Cosmos, you can cast from your grave graveyard if you mill it. Narfi Betrayer King, 
Three Seasons gives you access to stuff you milled. Master's Call that I talk about, talked about gives you access to stuff you've milled. And Rise of the Dragger gives you access to stuff you've milled. Then there are also other cards in this format that use cards in your graveyard or use having a large graveyard as a resource. Egon, God of Death, let Jarrod, Glade Warden, which is the green 3-3 changeling that can exile creatures to pump stuff. Masked Vandal, which is the green changeling that can exile a creature to just exile an artifact or enchantment. Um, Master Scald, talked about Stalwart Valkyrie, cheaper, the flyer that's cheaper if you can exile a creature. Vault Robber, the 1-3 that can make a treasure if you exile a creature. And Way Down, the minus 3, minus 3 sorcery. So those are... Literally all the cards that I think are relevant to doing some graveyard shenanigans. And I think that you can, you know, taking the information about how this archetype can splash and how strategic planning is the best way to enable those splashes, you can use some of these other colored cards to let you go into some really, like, deep, intricate, looping nonsense with your graveyard if you go deep enough. Um, where you're like using Master Scald with any of the sagas that let you kind of like loop and go off with it. And uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of fanciness available for anyone who's looking to do, in, to include kind of like deep engines in your blue black control deck. And remember, you still want to prioritize like the principles of, you know, blue black controlness into your graveyard deck like you fundamentally still need to like make sure that you're staying alive it's going to take a while to set this stuff up you need to be able to answer your opponent's threat you really want to prioritize your like way downs and preach the haunted edge and um feed the serpents maybe splash removal but you know as far as like you you're drafting this like cohesive core of removal stuff and then you need to find some way to end a game you need to make sure that you don't deck yourself you need to make sure you can actually kill your opponent maybe you just have a bunch of mist walkers and a dread rider and a rare or two of some sort some good uncommons i don't know and you're just like yeah i can just battle normally maybe that doesn't happen and you find yourself thinking all right let's Let's get weird. Let's do some loops, some reanimation. Let's use some of these kind of rares and uncommons with more niche effects. Find ways to, you know, take advantage of stuff other people aren't doing. Uh, I think blue-black in general, I've talked about a lot of different ways that you can do that. And obviously that's a great way to get an advantage in a draft is if you can find cards that are powerful for you and not other people at the table. So the last thing I want to touch on briefly there are, you know, there's like the trio of bad blue removal spells, uh, Bind the Monster, Raven Form, and Mists of Lichara. I, you know, you're playing a control deck, you likely need to have some removal, they're available in a pinch. I would caution against taking them early in a draft because you have access to like better black removal spells. Oh, uh, the crown, Wither Crown, is another card that I would try to avoid playing. So basically, like the fact that you can splash easily and there are premium black removal spells and stuff, I believe should let you be a little more picky with your removal and avoid playing bad removal. So I just want a note that you don't really need to like draft scared early with regard to getting removal. You can afford to take like Snowlands, splash cards, 
whatever whatever cards are like maybe actually good in certain circumstances over like some kind of like well if i'm desperate for removal this will technically let me answer something yeah try try to avoid blue removal and bad removal in general just trust that you're going to find real ways to answer stuff really small note let me just talk about some of the like creatures and spells that are the commons that are maybe noteworthy here um I've mentioned a lot of them. I, I talked about Carful Harbinger and how it's like a playable low-impact creature. I think it actually does really good work. Um, it's not that rare that your opponent's going to try to attack you with one ones or two ones, and having like the one three block or two twos, and having the one three blocker can be a really good way to not start the game super far on the back foot or at a low life total. And in your deck full of removal spells and card draws. Uh, also a good number of foretell spells, it's really easy to be able to take advantage of the mana that it gives you. And a 1-3 mana creature that gives you colored mana and everything is a very strong card. Like, that's the kind of card that would be reasonable to pick pretty early. But so few people want this because the mana is so narrow and it's, like, not strategically desirable for most people. So this is another card that you can always table. Just always. Like, I almost never see it not table and i'd be pretty happy to play one or two of them in a blue black control deck another thing to highlight here think about all the cards that i've said table and i don't know if you have had a similar experience to me but what i've seen especially lately is that black is so underdrafted that it's not that rare to see like feed the serpent sixth pick pack one or something so when you get into a spot where black where uh, black or blue black is open and even a lot of the time that you're not in that spot so many of the cards that you wanted that you want come late or free so this is a spot where once you are established at all you can really afford to take your snow islands snow swamps and snow duels that tap for blue or black really 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 highly it's fine to pass premium commons for them because the Priest of the Haunted Edge by itself is a really big deal if you can, like, if you see some of those that you expect to table and stuff. And you're just, you're not going to, you're so unlikely to find yourself short on playables that, you know, if, if it's a, a strong card that is filling a role that your deck needs or whatever, obviously, you know, you can let a Snowland go. But remember that if you want good Snowlands in this archetype, you need to fight for them, but you can afford to. That's my lesson plan on blue black now let's hear from the viewers any questions twitch chat how highly do i value run ashore that would have that that's a good uh comment to talk about so the more you're playing like careful harbinger obviously the easier it is to cast and since you're playing a long game and drawing cards uh you're expecting to hit six mana in any game that you are like vaguely participating in so you should like generally be able to cast run ashore I believe that Run Ashore is a very strong effect when you can cast it. Uh, the like fact that it kind of like trades one for one when it puts a card on top of your opponent's library, and then you have this like card advantage-wise free bounce effect allows you to you know like counter a removal spell by saving one of your creatures without costing yourself too much tempo because you're getting your opponent's creature off the battlefield and without costing yourself card advantage, which means that you're actually making card advantage because you're countering the removal spell. So it's a really, really easy, like, source of a two-for-one. I talked about a lot of different sagas that play well in this archetype, 
My favorite thing to do with Run Ashore is to buy back a Saga with the third chapter on the stack while getting rid of one of my opponent's cards. And then also, like, you're in a spot where you are often going to start out somewhat behind, and you're going to have large blockers eventually. And your opponent might find themselves in a spot where they're desperate to close the game. And so they might need to attack with, like, a bunch of 3-2s into your 4-5s or whatever, uh, thinking that they're pushing enough damage to win the game. And if you have Run Ashore to remove two of those attackers, you save yourself, kill the attackers that you block, and it swings the game. Also, sometimes it just, you know, every now and then you just have big creatures and find yourself in some kind of race. Run Ashore is really good. I'm very happy to play the first one in basically any blue deck. Second one is a little dicier, but I'm not sad about it. Third and beyond, we're getting like, can you really afford this many uh, six drops? Maybe, maybe you have a bunch of very strong sagas. Maybe you found like multiple Binding the Old Gods to splash or something and no other top end. And you're just like, yeah, run ashore, getting back my sagas is just what my deck does. But in general, I'm never sad to play the first run ashore. I value it. But if implicit, if the question of how highly do you value it is not how happy are you to play it and is instead how highly do you pick it, then my answer is I do not value it at all. I view it, like all these other cards, as a card that will reliably table, and because I don't want very many of them, I just expect that I can ignore it and end up with it. Do I see blue-black as a viable pivot for green-based splashy decks that don't get enough snowlands or fixing? Absolutely. I think that it is totally natural to try to draft multicolor green, move into blue, find a strong black card, and then realize that everyone else at the table also wants blue and you're not finding any green fix. Maybe at this point you're already like ambitiously splashing multiple cards and you're not finding any green fix, and maybe you start to see some strategic plannings and you think, oh, well I'm not seeing any green fix, but maybe I can just splash like my one good green card and I can start thinking about my base color is blue and taking blue fixing. It doesn't call itself fixing, but it absolutely is, and it's cheap to get compared to green fixing. So yeah, I think that knowing how to pivot out of green-based splashy decks into blue-black uh, blue splash green, or not splash green, or whatever, splashy decks is actually a really important skill for maximizing your win rate with like greedy control decks. How late would you jump off a better color when black is clearly wide open. So implicit in this question is the fact that I can agree with that black is the worst color. So this is assuming that basically like, all right, I started off, you know, X and blue, X could be anything. And now I'm seeing some real late black cards. Am I supposed to like abandon my other color that's maybe not open and move into black? And this is always going to come down to a question of like, well, how many cards deep into my other color am I? What's the best card available for me in this spot where I'm thinking about speculating on pivoting into black? How good is the black card? So there's, it's, the question for me is much less like, oh, well, I have a hard line at pick seven. And much more like, well, when I see a strong black card... Uh, I think about how likely it is that I can position myself into a spot where I would play that black card, and I think about the opportunity cost of the card that I would take if I'm not taking the black card. 
And if it's pack one and there's a card that'll be really good if I can find some way to pivot into black against like a replacement level card in my color that I could take to try to send a message and establish my color and make sure the person behind me is not drafting that color. I think all that stuff is nonsense and just like justifies drafting scared and you should like take the high upside card if the alternative is like a low upside card. But again, it's when you're drafting with the mentality that I just described, it's not so much about jumping off of a better color and more about positioning yourself to pivot to take advantage of the way that the draft proceeds. And I, I don't think that you necessarily want to think about it in terms of like, all right, this is the moment where I've decided that I'm giving up on my other color and moving into this color. And more, if you take a couple of picks where you're giving up low opportunity costs, to enable a pivot, you can find yourself in a spot where you choose to pivot. Next question, do you think black is as bad as people are making it out to be? Depends on the person. Obviously, I don't think that it's unplayable. I do think drafting is self-correcting, and I do think that there are ways to use black cards correctly to get wins. I do think that it is accurately described as the weakest color, but I don't think that that means that you should avoid it like the plague or anything. This isn't, uh, the classic example is like BFZ green, I think. Um, there, there was some set where green was like basically genuinely unplayable, although even then, I in particular argued for and played it way more than most. No, it, black is weak but fine. Regarding Turgrid, how often do you want the artifact versus the creature? Uh, should you value Skull Raid more highly because of the creature effect? Seems fine to value Skull Raid more highly because of the creature effect, and if you end up in a spot where you have Skull Raid around, you can prioritize playing the creature. As to which you should value more highly, uh, I, I don't have enough experience playing the card to know like which one I want more often. They're both very good, and obviously like the artifact side is exclusively aggressive. Like All it does is end a game. So... Obviously, anytime you're like on the back foot in some capacity and want a creature that can block, the front side is going to do a lot more to allow you to do that. Uh, so, but at the same time, if you're worried that your opponent has a removal spell and you just want to like make sure that they die, you want the artifact side. So I don't know. It's very good that the card has both of them. They're strong. You you can draft toward the ability of the front side of the card and not feel like you're wasting your time because you always want the artifact. If that's the heart of this question. The next question is, when you play above 40 cards, like I did with the 48 card special that I tweeted about, what are some of the thought processes involved in making the decision to go above 40? All right, so this is to some extent a do as I say, not as I do kind of situation where I would not advise going above 40 is uh, best left to professionals or ambitious or crazy people who don't necessarily care all that much about their win rate and want to explore stuff and have some fun. I think it is better to think about this as if rather than when you go above 40. However, if you are considering whether you are supposed to go above 40, the time when you should is if you think that your configuration is likely to result in you decking yourself before you win if you are at 40 and you think for some reason that instead of that you're the cards that lead to you decking yourself are so strong in your deck that they're among your best cards 
such that you don't want to just play fewer of them and enable your graveyard without decking yourself. So you need to be so invested in milling yourself early that you want to play so many of these mill cards that you would kill yourself and also feel like uh, you're in real danger. Uh, Ferja, as a payoff, is a card that's likely to lead to that for what it's worth because it's not a May and it leads to spots where you end up kind of accidentally decking yourself uh, more often than most. So this question is asking about what signals tell you the deck is open? So this is a slightly different question than um, what I talked about earlier, which was what cards you can like open that are strong that give you a reason to draft this deck. So this is more, you know, you're a few picks in and you may be like, maybe you're one color and you don't know what your other color is, or maybe you like first picked a card in a color that seems to be drying up and you're thinking maybe you want to pivot. So what cards are you looking for to say, oh, hey, how about blue-black? And so this is where uh, the fact, as I talked about, so many of the cards in this archetype go late that it doesn't really tell you that anything's open if you're seeing them late. Like a lot of the really good cards for this archetype, you can be directly behind someone who's in the same archetype and they're still just passing them because they're trying to table them or they don't, they're not in the exact version of the deck that wants it or... Um, whatever, they took a land over it. There are all kinds of reasons that you could see cards that are good in this archetype when this archetype genuinely isn't open. So that means that as far as like reading the table and being like, oh wow, this is, this is where I should be. You need to, in order to interpret a card as a signal in this archetype, it needs to be just an absolute premium bomb in its color. It needs to be like, oh, it's pick four and I'm seeing a poison the cup or a feed the serpent or behold the multiverse. Like something weird is happening here. Otherwise, don't try to like read the table and say like, oh, someone passed, I don't know, a like port of Carfell. I guess they must not be blue black. Like no, the blue black player is always trying to table the port of Carfell. It means nothing that you saw it. Um, so yeah. I would say, I would caution you to try to read signals very judiciously. It needs to be a hard signal for you to take it as meaning anything. And I also think that blue-black is not a premium archetype. Um, and so I only want to be pushed into this archetype if I'm seeing a radical signal that the deck is open. If I'm getting past uh, poison the Cup, or Icebind Pillar, or Feed the Serpent, or Behold the, hold the Multiverse. If I'm seeing anything that's less strong of a signal than that, unless I opened a rare that makes me just say, all right, this is what I want to do, I don't want to let people, like, bully me into accepting this archetype because I saw Jarl of Forsaken and thought that meant black was open or something. Question, based on this discussion, wouldn't it make sense that blue-black needs a third color like green or red to access better cards? Uh, I mean, that's basically what I talked about, where, like, it is cheap and easy and encouraged to splash. Do you need to if your colors are wide open? And, like, it's not like they fundamentally don't have access to cards that give you the effects that you need. There are card draw spells. There are removal spells. There are versatile answers. There are, like, finishers. It's all there. You can draft a, like, coherent straight blue-black deck if the seat's open and uh, you're getting past stuff. But you are well positioned to make your deck stronger by splashing something if you're seeing good synergistic cards to splash. When do you want to raise the Draugr in blue-black? 
I am generally pretty interested in at least the first copy of Raise the Dragger. There are certainly spots where I feel like I don't have enough creatures or my creatures are too all over the map or whatever to take it, but I think the fact that it exists is something that should inform your draft and should encourage you to prioritize specifically Mistwalker and Lajara Kinseeker um, as uh, changelings that allow you to like make sure that you're getting two cards with your uh, Rise of the Dragger, and then Priest of the Haunted Edge, strategic planning, cards that are reliably putting creatures into the graveyard. Um, and you can even prioritize something like Jarl of the Forsaken or Coma's Faithful that are cards that trade off really well. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the more you can build your deck around stuff that enables Rise the Dragger and then potentially draft multiple Rise the Draggers, that's just a very good path to building your deck in such a way that you're playing the early game, not falling behind, generating card advantage, reliably having your fin like finishers and bombs and you know being in a spot where if your opponent answers your busted rare, you get it back and everything. Like your the reanimation stuff is less about oh, now I'm going to cheat this giant thing into play and more about I have a really good card and I want to make sure that I still have it and uh Rise the Dragger works as well as Return Upon the Tide for doing that, if not better. So, uh, yeah, Rise the Dragger is absolutely like a desirable, maybe even premium part of what's happening in blue-black. Uh, yeah, you, you want it most of the time, and it should be something that's very much on your mind when you're drafting the deck. Would have been a reasonable card for me to discuss uh, in my like single common highlights section. Do I ever choose to draw first? If I did, it probably wouldn't be in blue-black unless um, it were post-sideboard in a control mirror. Uh, you have like a lot of access to card advantage as is, um, and like I would never want to choose draw uh, in the dark and just like get run over by some kind of post-aggro deck. Uh, there's a note from chat. The stats on 17 lands demonstrate blue-black sucks. I would caution against uh, taking that kind of data in that kind of way. I would say that stats show that blue-black has not historically been successful when drafted by a wide audience. That doesn't mean that it has a low ceiling, it means it has a low floor. It is possible that there are a lot of ways to draft blue-black incorrectly and that people have been doing it wrong. Um, and it's possible that like there is a lot of value to be gained by drafting it correctly or choosing your spots judiciously. It's not, you know, premium, it's not inherently strong, but it doesn't mean like, oh, you're a sucker if you let yourself draft blue-black or something like that. I do think that, you know, you want to be careful about only moving in when you find a card that really justifies it or when your seat really like heavily sends the message that it's open, but you know, it, it is a functional deck for sure, if you, like, draft it coherently. Do I like either vehicle in... Do I like any vehicle in these decks? Uh, hard pass, except for splashing uh, Chariot. This These decks I see as almost certainly too creature light to want a vehicle. Uh, that is going to wrap us up. 
thank you very much for joining me, tuning in, however you are listening to this. I I had a pretty interesting experience myself this week, diving into forcing the deck and getting some experience. I had some really successful decks, some really unsuccessful decks. I think that this statement that I made about the low floor but potentially high ceiling of the deck definitely bore out in my experience. Uh, there are a lot of ways to do it wrong, and I sadly couldn't hope to outline all of them. I can only hope that pointing to synergies to look for and ways to try to do it right might lead you to incidentally avoiding some of the ways to do it wrong, but I would not consider myself safe from falling into some uh, potential traps in drafting blue-black. I do think that this is a very difficult archetype to draft. When I was talking about red-white, I talked about how hard red-white is to draft and play, and that is not unique to red-white. This whole format is really hard, really deep, and there's a lot to unpack uh, that I'm still working through. So if you've tried the good decks, I recommend, uh, if you're looking for a fun change, diving into blue-black, but it'll be a challenge. Um, it, it is not bad, but is hard, is my belief. Good luck, have fun with it, and hope you tune in next week when I will be covering whatever my patrons tell me to cover. Uh, thank you, and goodbye, everyone. Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off.